Good evening. I know that uh, this is a special week. A lot of us will be traveling this week, seeing family, celebrating the holidays. So I wish you all a happy holiday. May not see you until Christmas Day or after that. I hope that uh, you get to spend some time with family and your loved ones. I'm glad that uh, you are able to be with us tonight as we continue our series on parables of the Old Testament. And tonight's parable comes from 1 Kings chapter 20. And as with most of these, a fairly obscure text uh, in the book of 1 Kings. So we'll look at 1 Kings and I just want to start with the reading. Uh, tonight I'm going to read more than just the parable because the person who tells the parable makes himself a part of it. And you'll understand what I mean as we start reading. So let's start reading with verse 35 of 1 Kings chapter 20. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not heard, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. A little background on this, and then I'll explain the parable a little bit. This is during the time of, of course, King Ahab of Israel. He's the king here in this text that we just read. Very powerful political figure. Uh, he was the seventh king of the northern kingdom. He was politically astute. He was clever at foreign policy. He was an economic genius. Ahab fortified Israelite cities. He maintained peace with the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, he strengthened economic ties with Phoenician seaports, much because of the connection that he got through his wife Jezebel. He also rebuilt the city of Samaria and strengthened it. But spiritually speaking, although he was one of the strongest political kings of Israel, he was one of the worst, if not the worst, king of Israel in spiritual terms. Look at his introduction in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. Ahab, son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He was a very bad king, spiritually speaking. And a lot of that was due to his marriage to Jezebel, who came from Phoenicia, and her influence over him that led him to worship 
false gods, namely Baal and Baal's consort Asherah. Jezebel persecuted and killed off many of the prophets of the Lord. There's a side note in 1 Kings 18 where a man named Obadiah, not the prophet Obadiah, but one of the officials of Ahab's court who hid 100 prophets in caves and fed them with bread and water. And so Israel's spiritual fate lay in the hands not of the kings or the priests, not of the official religious establishment, but in the hands of prophets like Elijah and a prophetic guild that is referenced here in the text in 1 Kings 20 that's usually referred to as the sons of the prophets. When you see that phrase, it refers to a group of prophets who work together to advance God's causes in a corrupt kingdom in, in Israel in the north. Now, one of Israel's great enemies was Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. And because of God's support, Ahab was able to defeat Ben-Hadad twice before the telling of this parable. And this is important to understanding the parable, and these events are recorded in 1 Kings chapter 20. The first time was in the city of Samaria, which Samaria was the capital city of Israel. And uh, in Samaria, Ben-Hadad came up against Ahab with 32 other kings. And that's a lot of kings. Don't think, though, of 32 nations as probably 32 city-states. But that's still a lot of troops, a huge force that was allied against uh, Ahab and Israel. But with an army of only 7,000, led by 232 Israelite servants not even generals, Israel was able to beat back the Syrian advances. That's how 1 Kings 20 begins. But the Syrians had an excuse for their loss. It was a humiliating loss. But Look at verse 23, what they said. They said of Israel, their gods are gods of the hills. See, they had this pagan mentality that there's a god for every nation. Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Uh, their first battle in Samaria was in a hilly area. They said, you know, they fight better in the hills because their gods are gods of the hills, but we have gods who are gods of the plains. So we're going to meet them in the plains and defeat them there. And so they uh, attacked Israel again, this time in a different place in a city called Aphek, which was a part of the tribe of Asher, east of Galilee. And there they fought again and outnumbered Israel. Ben-Hadad's forces were huge. And uh, there's a little statement in verse 27 that Israel's force was as two little flocks of goats. But miraculously, Israel defeated them by striking down 100,000 soldiers in battle, and then the walls of Aphek fell, very much like the walls of Jericho under Joshua years before. And in the falling of the walls, 27,000 other Syrian soldiers were killed. So another resounding defeat. Even though Ben-Hadad was on the run, and according to what we read a moment ago from verse 42, God had put him under the divine ban, devoted him to destruction... Ahab invited him into his chariot to negotiate a treaty. And this made God very displeased. And so he sent this unnamed prophet that we just read about 
to rebuke him and to tell him about his fate. And the king went home vexed and sullen. That's the background. Two successful wars, but disobedience to God who put Syria and Ben-Hadad under the divine ban, devoted for destruction, Ahab's disobedience in making a treaty with this, this pagan king, and then the doom spelled out through this parable. So with that background in place, let's examine the parable because there are a lot of strange things you might have picked up on as we go through it. It, it requires a little explanation before we draw some lessons out of this. And there are some very good practical lessons that we can draw from it. First of all, let's talk about this unnamed prophet. He told one of his colleagues among the sons of the prophets to strike him at the command of the Lord. Now, what would you do if you were in that situation? You'd probably do the same thing. Uh, this prophet seems to be, you know, a leader among the prophets. We don't know for sure who he is. But he goes to someone that's probably quite young and asks him to hit him in the face, you know, to wound him on purpose. Uh, you know, you can kind of sympathize with the other man who said, no, I'm not going to hit you in the face. I don't do that. But he was disobedient because this order came at the command of the Lord. And because he disobeyed the command of the Lord, it was prophesied that a lion would strike him down. Now, this verb strike is not typical of what you would use for a lion. You would say the lion would maul you or pounce on you. So this is a deliberate use of the word strike to give an analogy to, to what had not been done. He, it was a quid pro quo argument. Because you won't strike me, a lion will strike you. Keep that in mind because that's going to become very important in just a minute whenever we try to uh, figure out the meaning of the parable. So this well-intentioned but disobedient man was killed by the lion just as the prophet said. Next, the prophet found another man who probably had heard about the lion. And he said, strike me. And this time, the, the man obeyed. And he struck him and wounded him so that he was able to disguise himself with a bandage and go out into the field and wait on the king. And as the king passed, he told this parable, making himself one of the principal characters of the parable. He said that he had fought the Syrians for him in battle. And that during the battle, the soldier brought to him a prisoner of war and put him in his charge and said, watch him. If you lose him, it will be your life for his life. He asked the king what to do because he had gotten distracted and the prisoner escaped. And the king said, you've already answered your own question. You said it would be your life for his life. You lost him. So it's your life. Now notice how cleverly the prophet got the king to indict himself. He had the king step out of his own situation through the story, make a judgment that actually applied to himself. This is something you see in a lot of the Old Testament parables, and one that's probably the most familiar to you, uh, the one recorded in 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan tells David about uh, a man and his little ewe lamb, and ends the parable saying, you are the man. We'll talk about that parable on another evening. But that's the same situation here. Ahab is the man who lost the prisoner. Ben-Hadad being the prisoner. 
And so he just judged himself as one deserving death. So when he does that, the prophet removes the bandage and immediately the king recognizes him. Now that's really interesting. It could mean that it was a prophet that he had known. And some people guess maybe this was Micaiah, who is given by name a couple chapters later in 1 Kings 22. And Ahab is talking to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, about him. And he says, he always says evil things about me. So maybe he's thinking back on this occasion. And this is Micaiah, somebody who was a thorn in Ahab's side. And he knew him all too frequently from his vantage point. But another possibility, and this is something I never learned before, I, I found this very interesting, is that he may have bore a mark of some kind on his head, maybe on his forehead, that showed him to be a part of this prophetic guild, the sons of the prophets. And there's a, evidence of this throughout the Old Testament that the prophets, at least during the time of Elijah and Elisha, bore some kind of identifying mark. Uh, for example, look at uh, Zechariah 13, verse 6. And there it seems to be a wound either on the back or on the chest. Literally, the wording is between my hands. Zechariah indicates that the prophets had some kind of a, a wound, maybe a scar, like a brand on his chest or back that identified him as a prophet. Uh, in Isaiah 44, verse 5, it seems to be a mark on the hand. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4... As here, it seems to be a mark that was on the head. Now, I only found this in three places, and they're just passing references, probably because this was something familiar to the immediate readers. But it might have been what caused Ahab to recognize this prophet. Either way, he knew who he was. Maybe he had known him from a previous encounter. Maybe it was Micaiah. Maybe he had some mark, and that's why he wanted to disguise himself with a bandage over his head. It doesn't really matter. Ahab knew it was a prophet whenever he removed the bandage. And the prophet issued an ominous prediction in verse 42. I'll read it again. Thus says the Lord, because you have let it go out of your hand, the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. Because you let Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, the enemy of God's armies, because you let him go, and made a foolish treaty with him, it's going to be your life instead of his. Now, after hearing this parable, did Ahab repent? No, he went home vexed and sullen. And he took it out in the next chapter, we'll see, on Naboth, and uh, killed Naboth and seized his vineyard. And so this is a, a story we don't talk about a whole lot. You may read through it and think, how can I get anything in the world out of this story about political intrigue and war and these obscure prophetic sayings. There's a lot here to work with. And uh, I want to share with you several lessons that would apply to us. Here's the first one. The overall idea is obedience. And so the first lesson I want to share with you is we must obey God even when we're disinclined to do so. The, the man commanded by the prophet to strike him disobeyed. And we can sympathize with him, but he was punished. Just so Ahab was disinclined to kill Ben-Hadad, but he would be punished too because God wanted him to devote him to destruction. And sometimes for us, the word of God seems like a burden because it's so different 
from our own minds. It contradicts our own desires, our plans. But even when it doesn't, even when it's not convenient or we're disinclined to obey it, we must obey God, even above our own desires. And it will help for us to remember that every word of God is an act of grace. Ahab did not invite this into his life, and God did not have to tell him this parable, giving him a chance to repent. But God sent this prophet, and if you think about it, it was better for Ahab to hear the word from the prophet than not to hear it, even though he didn't like what he heard. Every word of God is an act of grace, even the ones we don't like. I'm reminded of this in Psalm 19, where the psalmist is praising God for his law. You don't hear this a whole lot, people praising God for his commandments and for his law. But you get this in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. A lot of times we'll say, I've lost so much because I am a Christian or the law of Christ restricts my life. I don't get to do the things I want to do. This is the right attitude, Psalm 19. In keeping them, there is great reward. It's better for us to know the word of the Lord than not to know it, even if it's not what we want to hear. It was an act of grace for the word of the Lord to come to Ahab. It's an act of grace for us to have the Bible in our hands, and we ought to treat it that way. So first of all, we must obey God even when we're disinclined to do so. Here's number two. There is an unrelenting prophet within all of us. Now, I, th I find this very interesting in the story. The man puts on the disguise, and he goes by the roadside, and he waits where he knows the king will be coming by. And I don't know if you pictured the scene in your mind, but I picture him coming out and just kind of popping out of a bush. Hey, here I am. And Ahab, you know, having to stop because he's standing in front of his chariot in the road. He stops him at an inconvenient time when Ahab is returning from the battlefield victorious and having successfully negotiated a treaty with a man who was his enemy. You remember what I said, he was a clever politician. So Ahab was very good at this. He considered himself a very wise politician, a very wise king. And he had just won two battles against one of the, the biggest armies in the area. He's very happy, and then here comes this prophet and tells him all the things that he had done wrong and tells him things that he doesn't want to hear. Now, did you know you have an unrelenting prophet inside of you like that? It's called your conscience. Inside each and every one of us, there is this nagging prophet, the conscience, that gives us feelings of obligation telling us what we should do and also feelings of guilt and shame whenever we do the thing we knew we should not have done. Now this is just an urge, it's a feeling, you might call it an emotion, 
And it has to be programmed properly because sometimes if you don't have the right information, if it's not programmed with the Word of God, it can mislead you. Paul is a good example of that who said in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, I have lived my life in all good conscience up to this day. Well, that includes the time when he was Saul of Tarsus. When he was Saul, he thought he was obeying God, but he didn't know the gospel. He didn't know the truth. And because he didn't know the truth, following his conscience was bad. But if you know the Word of God, you should listen to your conscience. Even when it comes at an inconvenient time, even when it annoys you and it's nagging you and it's leading you in a direction other than the direction you want to go, the conscience is like this prophet. It'll come out of nowhere. And we need to remember that our conscience is our friend. Resist the temptation to ignore your conscience. A man went to see his doctor and he said, I've been misbehaving, doc and my conscience is troubling me. And so the doctor said, and you want me to give you something to strengthen your willpower? He said, no, I want you to give me something that'll weaken my conscience. And that's what a lot of us want to do. We just want to ignore the conscience. And if you do that long enough, over and over again, you will desensitize yourself to where your conscience won't bother you anymore. Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, Speaking of those who have, have seared their consciences... I think one translation says, searing them as with a hot iron, like branding the skin, makes it thick and insensitive, uh, not able to feel pain. That's what you can do to your conscience. You just keep disobeying it, and pretty soon you won't feel it any longer. It won't bother you anymore. But you're at a major spiritual disadvantage without your conscience. You need your conscience to guide you, to drive you along in the right way. So don't shun it. Look to your conscience as a friend. Throughout his administration, Abraham Lincoln was a president under fire, especially during the Civil War. And though he knew he'd make errors, he resolved never to compromise his integrity. And there was a a statement of strong resolve that he, he once gave, and I want to share it with you. He said, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration... That if at the end, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I've lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left, and that friend shall be down inside of me. He's talking about the conscience. He's talking about that unnamed, unrelenting prophet by the wayside that might surprise you and come at an inconvenient time, but who is leading you in the right direction. So listen to your conscience. Number three, another thing we can learn from this is we make good comforters but poor judges of ourselves. We're good at comforting ourselves, but we're very bad judges of ourselves, very bad self-critics usually. King Ahab was a very good judge whenever the story was about someone else. Just like David with Nathan. David was a really good judge Whenever Nathan was telling a story about somebody else, but when it was turned on him, Ahab couldn't see how wrong he was to disobey God. That's why we need to read our Bibles with open minds and examine ourselves as as we read them to see if we're in the faith. And that's something we have to do on a regular basis, always considering that it's possible we may be in conflict with the Scriptures. That's why we need good friends in our lives, Christian brothers and sisters who trust us enough and we trust them enough to hold us accountable 
and hold us responsible. Proverbs talks about this all the time. For example, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. If you're wise, you'll love those who will tell you the truth, even when it's hard to hear. We're good comforters of ourselves, usually, but poor judges. Number four. Another thing we can learn from this story is we should never take half measures when it comes to sin. Ahab defeated Ben-Hadad twice, but twice he let him go back to his home country. Even though, according to verse 42, uh, Ben-Hadad, along with all of Syria, was devoted to destruction. He was not supposed to be kept alive. He was supposed to be captured. And what happened? Soon after this treaty, when Ahab invited him into his chariot and made a, a, an agreement with him, soon after that, Ben-Hadad broke the agreement, and Ahab and Jehoshaphat had allied together to meet Ben-Hadad once more, be the third time for Ahab, at Ramoth-Gilead. Now, because of the word of the prophet, Ahab was uh, paranoid, and he knew that his life was in danger as king, so he disguised himself as one of the ordinary soldiers. And in the battle, the Bible tells us, and this is in 1 Kings 22, in the battle, an archer drew his bow at random, and the arrow found a joint in Ahab's armor and delivered a mortal wound, and he died. You can't escape the judgment of God. But all of this came back on him because he took half measures when it came to obeying God. You have the same... So a very similar story in King Saul, the first king of Israel, before the kingdom divided. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God tells Saul, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. They were all devoted to destruction. But Saul kept back the best of the livestock and Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And years later, Saul would be in battle. He would become mortally wounded. Not wanting to be captured by the enemy, he took his own life. And a man came to report that, according to 2 Samuel chapter 1, to King David. And you know where that man came from? The man who reported Saul's death was an Amalekite. So the irony is clear. Ahab took half measures with Ben-Hadad, and Ben-Hadad was his undoing. Saul took half measures with the Amalekites, and an Amalekite was involved in his undoing. If you take half measures with sin, it will come back to bite you. We need to utterly destroy all that God asks us to destroy. If he asks us to wipe it out, he means it. Wipe it out, get rid of it, and replace it with something else. Something wholesome, something good. Like a bacterial infection, if you don't wipe it out, it comes back maybe twice as strong. Have you ever gotten all those antibiotics from your doctor and he says now I want you to take all of them and they they start making you sick to your stomach and you don't want to take all that medicine so you start feeling better and you leave maybe two or three in the bottle and then you get sick again why because it was you were starting to defeat it and before you had finally vanquished the enemy uh, you quit you didn't drive it all the way out of your body and it came back stronger than ever Jesus tells a parable in Luke 11 about a demon, an evil spirit, cast out. And it goes 
through waterless places seeking another host. And finding none, it returns back to its former host and finds him swept clean and empty. And the demon goes out and finds seven others worse than himself. And they go and possess the man. And his latter state is worse than the first. Now all that means is if you eradicate sin but you don't replace it through repentance with something else, with God's righteousness, with goodness in your soul, with good deeds done with your own hands, then your latter state is going to become worse than your first. Don't take half measures when it comes to getting rid of the sin in your life. And we do this a lot. And there are a lot of examples I could come up with, both you know, in the broad thinking broadly and in our own individual lives. For example, you know, years ago we started loosening up our, our standards on marriage. And a lot of us through our lifetimes have seen the marriage institution in this country crumble and fall. Uh, we, it started out with the no-fault divorce, and we said very little about it. Went along, it became ordinary and standard, and now it's same-sex marriage and you know, our government has just passed a federal law protecting same-sex marriage. What happened? Well, we didn't stand up for the ideal of marriage in the beginning, and we've seen it crumble and fall. We said a little. We said what we had to, but we took half measures. When it comes to other things, like biblical sexuality, We've allowed people to shame us and to call us intolerant and hateful. And now you look at what's happening with the younger generations. A recent statistic said that uh, 21% of gen, the gen, Generation Z identifies as LGBT. Now that's almost a quarter, one out of four of our young people. The church needs to stand up and fully, fully rebuke Sexual behavior that is not condoned by the New Testament. And we can do this in love. We don't have to be hateful. But we can preach the Word of God, which is, comes from a place of love, and show people love. It's hard. It's hard, but we can do it. In our own lives, is there, is there some habit that you have procrastinated getting rid of, that you've rationalized, that you've only half taken care of, that you've taken steps towards ridding from your life, but not all the way. Look out, just because you've started to eradicate it doesn't mean you've finished. And if you just take a half measure when it comes to repentance, it's going to come back in the end to be your undoing, just like with, with Ahab. There are many, many examples. Fill in your own example. What in your life have you only half done? What in your life are you leaving half undone? What needs to be done? And for years you've been telling yourself and kicking yourself and shaming yourself and procrastinating. What is it? Each and every one of us has something like that that needs to be done or needs to stop being done. You know what it is. Search your soul and think about Ahab and how he almost took care of what needed to be done but didn't do it all the way fully. We're reminded of the one who told Paul that he was almost persuaded. And we sing that song, almost 
but lost. It's a, it's a fitting warning that we all need to hear. Number five, we miss opportunities when we get distracted. In the parable, the prophet said that he lost his charge when he was busy here and there. Verse 40, according to the parable he told, he turned around and the man he was supposed to be guarding was gone. He lost him because he got distracted. How many times have we done that? We've been distracted by the business of the world and we failed to do what God has asked us to do. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. They click by so fast. If we turn around and get distracted, when we look back at what we were supposed to be doing, the, the opportunity will be gone. The door will be closed. We miss opportunities when we get distracted. We only have so, so much time to teach our children right from wrong. And those of you who have raised kids and, and uh, they've grown and gone off to their own lives, you tell us all the time how fast it goes. And uh, those of us who have teenagers now, we, we know what you're talking about. We're starting to see that you blink and all of a sudden they're grown. And your time with them grows short. And once they leave home, you know, you still have an influence over them, but not like when they're under your roof. You only have so much time to teach them. Make the best use of that time. You only have so much time to help others. There's only a window of opportunity there. Keep your eyes open for opportunities to serve God through helping others. And when you see it, do something. Do what you can do right then and there. Don't tell yourself, well, I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll do that later, or I'll remember that later. You'll miss the opportunity. You only have so much time to obey the gospel. If you've been thinking about being a Christian for months, for years, know that there'll come a day where you can't obey the gospel any longer. Maybe it seems inconvenient to you to make that good confession and to be lowered in the waters of baptism and raised up to walk in newness of life. But if you have the opportunity to do it, there's nothing more important in the world than to take care of your responsibility to accept the grace of God by faith in obedience to the gospel. There's never a better time to repent of sin than right now. Now is the appointed time. Now's the day of salvation. Now is when you can do it. You don't know if you can do it later. Why give the devil any more time we miss opportunities when we get distracted. Don't let yourself be distracted. One last lesson, and this, this one I think is the one the whole parable hinges on. God demands life for life. I remind you of what the soldier says in the parable, verse 39. If by any means he is missing, talking about the prisoner, if any means he is missing... Your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. As a side note, I think it's really interesting he's telling him, it's either the death penalty for you, or you can pay a ransom of a talent of silver. This is an indication that in cases of capital punishment, the death penalty, 
A ransom was often allowed. And that, that's a little bit of a relief when you think about it because the law of Moses has so many commandments that carry the death penalty. If you go through the Ten Commandments, um, idolatry, taking God's name in vain, failing to honor your mother and your father, breaking the Sabbath, adultery and murder. That's uh, seven out of the ten carried the death penalty. And you think, well, how was anybody still alive, you know, when Christ came? Well, maybe most of the time they were able to ransom. Like here, the king said, it's either your life or you pay a talent of silver, which was uh, like 75 pounds of silver, I think. Great deal of money. So a precious price. Another indication of this is in Numbers chapter 35, verse 31 and 32, where it seems that except in the case of murder... In all other cases, a ransom was allowed instead of death. Here's what it says. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to a city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. He's talking about murderers there, and he's saying there's no ransom allowed for them. But he wouldn't say that unless the implication was there that in other cases, ransoms were allowed. And so stonings were probably quite rare by the days of Ahab. And this is assuming that they obeyed the law of Moses, which we know in, in most cases by this time, they weren't doing that. They were committing idolatry. So why would they care about the, the death penalty? But I bring that up because the idea is very important to understanding the mind of God. There's something very important here about understanding the mind of God. And it's wrapped up in these words, life for life. The idea of a substitution. This prisoner was supposed to pay, but you lost him, and so now you will pay. And isn't that the gospel that brings us hope? A substitution. You have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. You are to pay for your life. But now God, who is judge, unlike Ahab, is not saying someone else will have to pay for this man who escaped. God is saying, I will send my own son, and it will be his life for your life. We see this beautiful possibility of substitution in the mind of God. Just a glimpse of it here in the parable of the escaped prisoner. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We can be healed through the wounds of Christ. Because when our lives were in jeopardy, when we were prisoners, God allowed us to escape. And he said, not your life, but the life of my own son. Now, friends, that's beautiful. That's God's grace. That's his gift to you. Will you refuse it? 
can you look at that and, and tell the Lord, you're not interested? Will you take half measures and become almost a Christian or live almost like a Christian but have one foot in the world and one foot with God? You can't live like that. You're either with Him or you're against Him. Have you made a commitment to Christ tonight? Are you saved and redeemed by the ransom of Jesus' blood? If not, we're going to sing an invitation song. And if we can help you in any way, please let us do so right now as we stand and as we sing.